welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Is it possible for an Orthodox Jew to convert to Christianity and to see Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as their Savior from sin? You know, Ellen White tells us that uh, this is possible. In her book, Great Controversy, she tells the story about a man by the name of Joseph Wolfe. Those of you who have read Great Controversy, do you remember reading about Joseph Wolfe, a Jew in Europe? I want to just share with you the circumstances under which Joseph Wolfe converted from Orthodoxy, Jewish Orthodoxy, to believing that Jesus was his Savior from sin. He was a little boy, and he was uh, listening, sitting on the floor, as some of the older ones were talking very solemn religious things and why he thought was thinking why have the Jews been disappointed about the Messiah that was his question God promised him they wailed but he was listening to the elders say but why hasn't the Messiah come to us well one day the name of Jesus of Nazareth came up and little Joseph Wolf just asked an innocent question to the elders, who was he? Who was Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, was the answer a Jew of the greatest talent, but he pretended to be the Messiah, and so the Jewish tribunal sentenced him to death. But the little boy still had questions about Jesus of Nazareth. Why is Jerusalem destroyed, and why are we Jews in captivity? And this time, Joseph's father answered, Alas, because the Jews murdered the prophets. Well, immediately, two plus two equaled four, flashing through this little boy's mind, and he was thinking, perhaps Jesus was also a prophet, and the Jews killed him when he was innocent. Well, the child was forbidden to go to a Christian church, but this conviction was so strong that he would linger outside the Christian church just to hear the preaching that was coming through the windows. And when he was only seven years of age, he was boasting to a Christian neighbor of the future triumph of the Jews at the coming of the Messiah. And the old man interrupted him and said, Dear boy, the real Messiah was Jesus of Nazareth, but your ancestors rejected and crucified him as they did all of the prophets. Go home. Just read Isaiah chapter 53 out of your Old Testament, and you will see that Jesus is the Son of God. And so Joseph did that very thing. And it fit perfectly. He read Isaiah 53, and he saw the truth of it, that Jesus was the Messiah right there in Isaiah 53. And so he asked his father to explain to him that chapter. But his father disliked even thinking about Isaiah 53, and he was very stern about it. Joseph never asked again. But the truth moved him to grow up to be a Christian missionary and to proclaim the second coming of Jesus Christ. He was steeped in Jewish unbelief. Uh, His father was. Also, all of the other elders that he had listened to, all of them were left behind. Joseph followed Jesus. And he went throughout the whole uh, Eastern Europe proclaiming Jesus' soon coming along with the great Advent movement surrounding 1844. Those elders of Joseph Wolfe's, they continued to pray to the God of Abraham to send their Messiah while they refused to see that he had already come in Jesus of Nazareth. Another thousand years of those prayers would still be in vain, wouldn't they? 
because the Messiah has already come. If God has given a most precious gift and people sinfully refuse to accept it, does heaven send it again? The Jews will never get it unless they back it up and they receive the gift that has already been sent them 2,000 years ago, correct? I mean, after all, God has a healthy respect, doesn't he? He's not going to send Jesus down here in human garb again to convince them that he's the Messiah. He sent him once, and the only way to recover him for the Jews is to go back in their history. Amen? The Seventh-day Adventist Church is in a similar quandary. How can we explain to an innocent child why Jesus has not come back a second time when our pioneers proclaimed that Jesus' coming was soon and it's been over 170 years ago that that message went forth? I'm very serious about asking this question. I want to be very practical with you now, and I love you very much. What most of I have to say this morning is not against you. Actually, it's not against anyone. It is so that we can help to see the state of our worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church, have a deeper appreciation of why there has been a delay of over 170 years since 1844 in the second coming of Jesus. Would you like to go with me on this short journey for some answers? I mean, does when Jesus says he's coming soon, does soon really mean soon, or does it defy all our earthly definitions? And we have to redefine soon as meaning long time, long way off. I think that Daniel in Revelation pinpointed the time when Jesus wanted to come shortly thereafter. The last time prophecy in the book of Daniel was the 2300 years, and it ended in 1844. Jesus wanted to come shortly after that. Our, our pioneers clearly expected to see Jesus come in their lifetime. Did they not? Sure they did. Even heaven sent an angel to Ellen G. White and gave her a vision in May of 1856, and the angel assured her that Christ would come within their physical lifetime. And then Ellen White added solemn words, these spoken by the angel, and yet we're still here. Why? I think that God expects us to ask that question, don't you? Why are we still here? If we believe what we proclaim, do you love the appearing of Jesus, the thought of the soon coming of Jesus? Amen. If we truly love the thought that Jesus is coming soon, then we ought to be concerned. Why the delay? Why this failure of the angel's promise of 1856 that those saints living then within their lifetime would see Jesus come? I think we need to understand a little bit of our history for that question to be answered. Now, just like Joseph Wolfe's elders were praying for something that had already happened, God has promised to send the latter rain of the Holy Spirit before Christ can come the second time. I don't ask you to agree with me on things. I just ask you to think about them, you know, and if you have some challenge to me, why I'm perfectly willing to listen as you present inspired evidence to me. But it, the Bible seems to be very clear that before Jesus can come, there must be a latter rain of the Holy Spirit to prepare the harvest for maturity. And just as Joseph Wolfe found in his Bible evidence that the Lord had sent the Messiah to the Jews in Christ, so we find evidence that heaven sent us the latter rain that we have been praying so much for of late. By the way, the prophecy of the latter rain is in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, and it says, 
I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. It sounds like the last prophetic movement will be a movement of prophets and prophetesses, doesn't it? That will be the latter rain, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will mature the harvest for Jesus to come. Well, just like Jesus, God has sent the Messiah for the Jews 2,000 years ago, and in order for them to uh, understand who their Messiah is, they must go back in their history. Likewise, God promised to give us the latter rain. And the question is, did he begin to send the latter rain to us as a people, the Seventh-day Adventists? And the evidence of our history indicates that he began to send us the latter rain in 1888, because here is the inspired evidence from Testimonies to Ministers, pages 91 and 92. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people that was the beginning both of the loud cry of Revelation 18 and of showers from heaven of the latter rain. Those are Ellen White's words. And then she adds some hundred times that in our history we disdained it. We disdained it just like the Jews disdained the Messiah when he came. So we have deprived the world of a blessing that God designed that we should have had. In her understanding, there has never been a greater mistake made by the Lord's true church since what the Jews did 2,000 years ago. Sometimes we think, well, the only thing that's going to trigger the latter rain is the persecution of God's people. Actually, it's the other way around. The latter rain is going to be poured out upon God's people, and that will trigger the persecution. Ellen White says this, all the universe of heaven witnessed the disgraceful treatment of Jesus Christ represented by the Holy Spirit. Those are solemn words, aren't they? Had Christ been before them, she's referring to a general conference session in Minneapolis in 1888. Had Christ been before them, they would have treated him in a manner similar to that in which the Jews treated Christ. Those are very, very solemn words regarding our history. Ellen White, 1888 Materials, page 1,479. There are probably another dozen statements just like that, and I have the page numbers here written down. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? Recover what we have lost. Amen. Recover what we have lost. An innocent child like Joseph Wolfe saw that that is what his people needed to do to recover what his people, the Jews, had lost. He recovered the Messiah. He went back in his history as a people. To solve, to resolve our quandary of the delay of Jesus coming, dear friends, it is very, very simple. It is not complex to figure out. Let's give to the world church the message which we rejected. The problem is very simple. The world needs that special good news that God wanted to give them. And how dare we withhold it from them century after century? Let's be basic. Let's define what is the latter rain. The latter rain, very simply, is this. A special gift which God gives of his Holy Spirit to prepare you and me, his people, for translation at his second coming. And what we mean by the word translation is to go home with Jesus when he comes, the second visit, without seeing death. That's the latter rain. The latter rain prepares the final harvest for translation at Jesus' coming. Amen. Ripens it. 
The latter rain is what woos God's people away from their love of the world so that they want the kingdom of God to come. They lose all love for themselves and for this world, and they love Jesus and him only, and they want to see him come. And so it, that will awaken such a zeal uh, in the hearts of those folks, uh, just like the zeal of those who were awaiting Jesus coming in the autumn, the summer and autumn of 1844, there will be a wonderful zeal motivated by God's love to go out and share the cross with the world as a result of the latter rain. And that's going to mean a shift in Christian experience from old covenant thinking to new covenant thinking. What we mean is this, from being motivated by fear of self, which is a fear that if, you know, our our religion is driven by a fear, if we don't accept Jesus, we're going to go to hell, and if we do accept him, we're going to go to heaven. All of that is self-motivation, that's old covenant thinking, and we're going to undergo a shift to new covenant thinking where everything is moved by the love of God and for concern for him. That's what we mean by a shift from old covenant to new covenant. That will be the latter rain. It was from the principle that was, it was this principle that impacted the Elijah message that God sent to this people in our history. It demonstrated here that there is some light here in the gospel that is a greater light than it exists out in the popular Sunday-keeping churches of the world. It is an understanding of justification by faith in light of the Day of Atonement, that's something that goes beyond Martin Luther, beyond John Calvin, or the evangelical understanding. And this shift is something that takes place in what Nicole read out of Revelation chapter 19. There's only one text that you look at in this message this morning. Look at Revelation 19 again in verse 7. Because it indicates this shift from old covenant thinking to new covenant thinking. It says, Revelation 19 verse 7, The marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now, someone... Some intelligent person has asked the question, what does it mean for the bride to make herself ready? That's a good question. The bride is the worldwide church. True? So this is going to be a a worldwide shift in thinking of the worldwide church, not just here in Hayward. But it's important for us in Hayward to have an understanding of what's going on in the worldwide church. The woman actually grows up. She becomes a bride who understands, who loves her bridegroom. Right now, God's people worldwide are an immature teenager in terms of their love. What are... I'm very tempted to go off on lots of little tangents and illustrations here and not stay on target, but I don't think any mature man would marry an immature teenager, would they? That would be puppy love. A mature man wants a woman who has a mature love and appreciates what he wants, and he wants what she wants. Their hearts are knit together as one. But right now, Jesus has an immature little teenager as far as his church is concerned. She becomes a bride who understands and who loves her bridegroom. And concern for Jesus becomes greater than her former self-centered concern for her own salvation. That's Old Covenant thinking. There's a shift from Old Covenant thinking to New, and it has to do with self-love or God's love. That's how she makes herself ready. Now, Ellen White has taught us to think of the latter rain as a message of Christ's righteousness, which is this message of God's love. 
It is a clearer grasp of practical godliness. All of it is by faith. The idea is in the next verse. So look at Revelation 19 and look at verse 8, okay? Because here is the shift that takes place with the bride. Revelation 19 and verse 8. It says, And to her the bride was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, For the fine linen is the righteousness of what? Of saints. And that word there is dikaiomata. It means practical righteousness. It means that the love of God has now become real for them, practical for them. It has brought them into harmony with all of God's law, which has been written upon their hearts and upon their minds. Heretofore, they have thought of the righteousness of God as something external to them, as something that that legally forgives them of sins. Justification is a legal thing. But now this righteousness of God, which is Jesus, amen, becomes practical, and that love becomes the righteousness of the saints. That's the shift that takes place as the bride makes herself ready. At last, the latter rain is welcomed. This is what the latter rain brings. It is welcomed. It's no longer resisted. It's received. God's people have taken the step that concludes the message from the true witness It it is commensurate with what Jesus says there of Laodicea when he says that they have overcome even as he overcame. And that overcoming is the reception of this agape love, this dikaiomata. Their faith has matured under the refreshing showers of the latter rain which they have received. According to Ellen White's testimony, all of this should have come over a century ago to God's people within the lifetime of people that were living in 1856. When the latter rain is received, it will prepare for a grand harvest of human souls who will respond to a final lifting up of Christ and Him crucified. For you see, this latter rain, which will be poured out on God's folks who are willing to receive it, all of them will become prophets of the cross the message of the cross. I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? When we will have thousands of men, women, and children from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people who will know by the impetus of the Holy Spirit how to proclaim the message of Christ and Him crucified. That will move people's hearts by the love of God. It's going to be a revelation of the cross that the world so dearly needs to see. The most precious message is going to penetrate to every honest heart on earth. Dear friends, no matter how many Christian missions there have been out there in the world over the last several centuries, and God bless those missions and the infrastructure that has been established, there has not been yet a clear proclamation of the cross of Christ yet to prepare a final harvest. Finally, God can do something to force. Well, this is the question. Can God force this sleeping little bride teenager? Here it is in the 21st century, God's church. Can he force her, motivate her to make herself ready? Can love force? Has to be no. Here's some place where God's omnipotence has to be restrained, right? Because love does not force. Never has a bridegroom dressed his bride for the wedding, much less even gotten into the dressing room. She must always make herself ready. Christ has given us an excellent system of church organization, but he has wisely left 
this initiative of making herself ready, he has left that to us. Prayer is good, but it is not good enough. It must be augmented by doing something according to this. She must make herself ready. Or, as Jesus said to Laodicea in Revelation 3.19, be zealous, therefore, and what? Repent. Repent. Praying for the latter rain could drag on amongst us for another century. We could pray, I say this honestly, not critically, we could have long prayer sessions for the latter rain, and that could go on for another hundred years, and it wouldn't come. No bridegroom in his right mind can coerce his bride to say, I do. And neither does Christ force those words from the lips of his bride. Merely repenting of some individual sins amongst us as individuals, that is good work, but it clearly doesn't go far enough toward the preparing the way for the outpouring of the Spirit in the latter rain. I do not understand clearly how believing that our sins are forgiven is the same method by which the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain is received. Our sins were forgiven a long time ago through the death of the Son of God on the cross. Paul tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. By the way, the whole difference between the evangelical gospel and the gospel revealed to us is that you can ask yourself the question, does God only forgive sins when a person asks for them to be forgiven, or has he already forgiven them before they ask for it? The false gospel is that he only forgives sins when he's asked to forgive them. The true gospel is he forgives the sins of everyone before they ask him. The reason that he bids you to ask for the forgiveness of sins so that you can appreciate the forgiveness. Otherwise, you'll go blithely on in ignorance. Amen? So our sins were forgiven long ago at the death of Jesus on the cross. So whether a person feels his sins are forgiven or not, it is a fact. And if he so believes, then he experiences the wonderfulness of that forgiveness of sins. But can justification be thus confused with the more complete sanctification which the latter rain will develop? Is the demand and reception of which the servant of the Lord speaks merely our determined assumption that we're going to have it? That if we name it, we can claim it, and then we have the Holy Spirit? Is that how it works? I put it very bluntly like that because... Sometimes that's our misperception of how it's obtained. That if we just name it, we can claim it. But that's not how the Holy Spirit works. Again, to illustrate, would our lukewarmness be overcome simply by issuing through faith? We have overcome lukewarmness. What is the faith which works by love? Do you know how uh, spirit, you know what spiritualism is? It's the religion of the worship of the devil, right? Dressed up in human form. You know how spiritualists teach the claiming of the spirit? Here are some words from the Spiritualist magazine. Let Thursday be your day for declaring your faith. Say, I do believe that God is now working with me and by me and for me. Say it with a sure certainty, for it is true. Sounds like some of our prayer vigils for the latter rain, doesn't it? Name it, claim it. What would be the difference between that doctrine and the doctrine that we have the power of the Holy Spirit simply because we believe with certainty we do have it? There wouldn't be any difference at all. Give you an illustration from our history 
1893 at a general conference session, a preacher uh, preached a series of sermons, 10 of them on the Holy Spirit, on just how to get the Holy Spirit. This was four years after 1888 when the Lord in his mercy has sent initial outpourings of the latter rain. And this preacher closed his appeal to the brethren to believe that they had the power of the loud cry and thus to go out determined to give it. If they would only believe it, that they, then they would have it and it would be so. And so everybody there at that session agreed and they said, we're ready for it. But did it come? It did not come. Why? The same speaker went on further to say, and he made a prophecy, a prediction, unqualified. He said, from here on out, there aren't going to be any more hypocrites that come into this church. Certainly that was a false prophecy. So if a preacher makes a false prophecy like that, then can he be relied upon to, uh, depended on to uh, believe what he says in terms of claiming the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. Was not this doctrine of believing that they had the Holy Spirit when they didn't have it a false teaching? Absolutely. If the reception of the Holy Spirit depends upon an act of our minds in assuming that we have it and we call it faith, if we, we can call it faith if we wish, would that actually, in the final analysis, be receiving the Spirit? No, If in reality it was true that we could say, I can name it and I can claim the Holy Spirit, then that would mean that faith becomes a works by which we claim the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit doesn't come by works. An act of believing that we have the Holy Spirit is a work. Paul made it plain that the true Holy Spirit is not received by our naming and claiming it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. The Holy Spirit is still a human being. Pardon me. The Holy Spirit is still a being as well as the Son of God. He cherishes in his heart a confidence that his people are basically honest. You know, all of us, we wouldn't be here if we weren't genuinely honest in heart, because it, it takes an honest heart to believe the 28 fundamental beliefs of Seventh-day Adventists, doesn't it? The Sabbath, the mortality of man, all of these distinguishing doctrines, it takes a genuine honest heart to be a Seventh-day Adventist. So I believe that the core of Seventh-day Adventist heart is an honest and a genuine heart. And this conviction that Christ cherishes requires that we overcome where Joseph Wolfe and his elders failed to overcome. In other words, Joseph Wolfe was willing to see that something had happened in the Jews' history, and he had to go back, and he recovered the Messiah in his history. Seventh-day Adventists, the only way to make a recovery. And by the way, there is a redo on this for us. Aren't you thankful for redos in God's program? There is a redo for us if we're willing to go back in our history and recover what we lost. So creating an offshoot, creating a different movement other than the Seventh-day Advent movement is not the solution. Jesus tells us that the solution for you and for me and for his worldwide church is very simple. Repentance of the church is the solution. Repentance, acknowledging our history as true and recovering what he has given to us in our history. You know, the apostles never wrung their hands over the impotence of the gospel, and it does no good to say that because people are more sinful now, therefore we can't expect such results. Where sin abounds, grace is too much more abound. Otherwise, there can be no latter rain. There can be no loud cry to enlighten the earth with glory. Paul said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. When true righteousness by faith is proclaimed, something is going to happen. The love of Christ is going to constrain us, and all of the devils in hell can't resist those who sense that constraint. 
Through analysis, it can be seen that much of what we have naively assumed is righteousness by faith that is proclaimed amongst us proves to be a dominant kind of legalism that is playing upon the fears of our people and motivates them out of fear. But when the gospel is clearly proclaimed, our people will respond loyally and they're going to sacrifice to the finishing of the work in that very generation. That is, if the, when that generation is permitted to hear the gospel in its full clarity, I believe in the genuine heartedness of Seventh-day Adventist people. And I think that we as leaders should take the blame and not seek to cast the blame for the delay of Jesus' coming upon you as lay people. I think I'm responsible for it. I think our leaders are responsible for not giving the purity, the clarity of the gospel of love to our people. Because much of what is taught is self-love based. The Greek word for it is eros. Appeals are made to the fears of being lost or rejected by the Lord. When the larger issue of the vindication of Christ by the remnant church seems to elude the grasp, the self-centered rather than the Christ-centered theme predominates. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself is, who is put to an open shame by our refusal heretofore to acknowledge our true position before the world and the watching universe. Heaven, what heaven must think as they look upon us. The dear Lord fulfilled the promises made to the pioneers and he sent the beginning of the latter reign at a certain session of our general conference. Our fathers resisted it. It is clear from the servant of the Lord. They spurned it until that generation were unable to appreciate it and receive it. And now that generation has all gone to their graves, declining to recognize the fact that we now renew our tearful, insistent prayers that God will graciously give us our latter rain, ignoring the fact that he's already tried to give it to us, and we refused it. The Lord likewise fulfilled the promises made to the patriarchs by sending the Messiah to the Jewish nation. They treated him much as we treated the Elijah message, according to the numerous Ellen White statements, and still today the Jews lift up their trembling hands to heaven, imploring that God will send them their Messiah when he has already sent it to them. It makes me wonder if it isn't like the Israelites who came to the borders of the Canaan and they rejected it to go up and to take the land. And then when they realized that they had gone, that they, what they had, then when they realized they could have gone in, they tried to take it by force, do you remember? But they failed because they had not really seen that their deep sin was of rejecting divine providence in it all. And in the same way, could those in 1893 have seen that indeed the loud cry, the latter rain had begun, but without repenting for what had taken place in 1888, they were ready to demand and take by force the Holy Spirit which had been so freely offered before, doesn't it seem like to you that we could be repeating the same mistake? The only hope for the Jews is to frankly acknowledge the mistakes of their fathers at Calvary. Inspiration indicates that many Jews are going to acknowledge the mistakes of their fathers and not recognizing their Messiah. You can read Romans chapter 11 on this. Likewise, the only hope for us to receive the latter rain is honestly beginning at all levels, therewith growing into a corporate repentance and a humbling of heart before God. Are we so much better than the Jews? We should not be so high-minded, the Lord says, but we should fear the Jews might yet beat us to righteousness, and wouldn't that be the irony of the ages? Meanwhile, what kind of latter rain can an impenitent and a stubborn people receive? Wouldn't it have a taste of spiritualism to it? What we need is a corporate repentance. 
and a humbling of our hearts before God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Our history demands it. The Lord Jesus himself charges us with the guilt of a corporate sin and the duty of corporate repentance. I don't think any other conclusion can follow from our common understanding of Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, the Laodicean message, unless we deny that that message is addressed to the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church. Such a position would run counter if we denied it to our interpretation of over a hundred years. According to the Laodicean message, our corporate sin is a sincere, unwitting failure to discern our true position before the watching universe, and our corporate duty is quite specifically to be zealous, therefore, and repent. That's what Jesus says. And the 1888 sin is not exclusively a sin to us, but it is a revelation to us in history of our particular church's guilt, just like Calvary is not our, exclusively our sin, but is a revelation of the universal guilt of humanity. If you're ready to acknowledge that you murdered the Son of God, you're beginning on the pathway to repentance. Can you acknowledge that? Then if you can acknowledge that, then when Jesus came as a lover to his people in our history, and he was spurned and rejected in the, in the form of the Holy Spirit and two messengers, that same spirit of the pride of life that is of the world is our sin. And had we been there, we would have done probably the same thing and not recognized the appearance of Jesus in the form of the Spirit. So repentance and acknowledging our sin of murdering the Son of God is a long step toward this corporate repentance. The spirit of prophecy in emphasis so emphatic and reiterated as to be beyond evasion lays upon us the same corporate guilt as rested anciently on Israel. In so doing, the spirit of prophecy reflects in its entire emphasis the message that Jesus addresses to the Laodicean church. The complementary response is repentance, which experienced the ancient Jews disdained. Incidentally, the call to repentance in the Laodicean message is a most encouraging, restorative, hopeful message that could come to you and me from Jesus' lips. Trying to soft-pedal the repentance is never, will never accentuate reconciliation with Christ. The experience of repentance has almost always in past history been as unwelcome to God's people, ancient and modern, as it is today. Yet the entire sweep of history has always called, upheld the call to repent and condemned its rejection. Corporate repentance was envisioned by Ellen White in the 1888 General Conference session, in these words, she said, there will be a great humbling of heart before God on the part of everyone who remains faithful and true to the end. What does that mean? What does that mean? What I'm thinking of is the unfairness to Jesus himself for our long delay in the finishing of his work. He carries the burden on his heart of the world's sorrow and pain. While you and I are, have our families and we are living in comfort, pleasure, comparative ease, every day we postpone the finishing of God's work. It adds to the pain of Jesus' heart. Is our relationship to the Lord Jesus right if we either ignore or deny the fact that when he earnestly tried to give us the latter rain already in our history, we misunderstood, we resisted, we re repulsed, we rejected it? 
And wouldn't simple courtesy to the Lord Jesus require that we humble our hearts before Him and ask His pardon? And would not reverence and godly fear even more insistently demand such from us? The alternative is to give the impression that either God is reluctant to give the latter rain, so we have to beg Him, we have to plead for it, before he's going to release it, or maybe we need to do more works in order to merit the outpouring of the latter rain. Maybe we need to be more diligent, have more long night vigils of prayer, be more zealous and work harder. Maybe give more offerings and tithes. The Holy Spirit never comes in response to the works of his people much less those that are motivated by self. The repentance, you know, if repentance is genuine, it's restorative, isn't it? It not, only, it not just says, Lord, forgive me of my sins, blah, 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 and goodbye, see you tomorrow. It goes back and seeks to make right what was done wrong, Correct? And God is appealing to us to go back in our history, just like the Jews need to go back in their history and recover their Messiah, whom they believe has never come. And likewise, we need to go back into our history when God began to send to us the latter rain and see what we lost there in order that it might be recovered. God believes and redoes. It can be redone. The point is that Christ is, a, is also a lover. Jesus came to this church in our history as a lover. And he was rebuffed. He was rejected. By his true love, the supreme, by, by his true love, his bride, he was rejected. The object of his supreme regard on this earth rejected him in our history. His high hope was that in union with his bride-to-be, he could lighten the earth with the glory of a message through which all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Some dimensions of that divine disappointment can be grasped by considering the Laodicean message. Did you know the true source of the Laodicean message is the book of the Song of Solomon? There you have a poem where the true lover appeals to his sweetheart to let him in because he is in need. He's been on a long safari. And now it's raining. The rains have come. And he is outside. He's cold and he is wet. He's knocking insistently at the door. Will she please let him in? But she has already cleaned the dirt off of her feet from the floor of her little hut. And she has put on her night clothes. And she has gone under the covers. And it's a cold night. And she hears this knocking And all she can think about is herself, and she doesn't want to have to go through all that process again to let him in. The little girl is thinking only of her own comfort, of her own ease, and she scorns his appeal. Finally, she arouses herself to a sense of concern for him that transcends her concern for herself But when she at last opens the door, she finds he has gone. That's where Song of Solomon leaves it. And as long as we keep up this prayer of naming the Holy Spirit and claiming it, we'll not find him at the door waiting for us. Just to make it that simple. What it will require is a genuine Zealousness for repentance, which means to restore what was lost by the original sin of the rejection and spurning of Christ in our history. Well, I felt it incumbent upon me since some intelligent person asked me to talk about what does it mean to make herself ready. The bride makes herself ready. I thought it incumbent upon me to address that topic. I thought maybe there were enough in the congregation now after eight or nine years that 
perhaps might understand and begin to resonate with what would be said this morning. If all of this is new to some of your ears, I hope that it has piqued your interest in our latter rain, which God has begun to give to us in our history, but which was spurned. If you are really earnest and love the thought of Jesus coming, you should be interested in the latter rain. It's the only way by which Jesus can come. And I encourage you to study it for yourself. There are abundant resources for you to better appreciate what is going on in our church family. I think it's important for us to know that we are part of a worldwide church family. I don't know how many millions there are, maybe 15, 17 million Seventh-day Adventists around the world. But dear friends, this church is the object of God's supreme regard upon this earth because he has revealed to it a special understanding of the gospel in light of the Day of Atonement in order to prepare the way for his soon coming. And it is this special people who are now sleeping like teenage girl when Jesus wants a full-fledged bride to be awaiting his coming. And it's important for us to see that macro level, although we worship on a micro level here from one Sabbath to the next. Because I think helping us to see that helps us to get into the heart of Jesus and to know what he sees begin appreciating that this is one of the most difficult problems that Jesus has ever faced in all of human history, all of salvation history, even a greater problem than the Jewish people who rejected the Messiah, and that is to awaken the Laodicean church by his agape love. I pray that genuine revival and reformation will happen in the midst of of this Hayward family. And it can only happen through the principle of the cross. Any other, there's, th- there's thousands of gospels out there, dear friends, and all of them are filled with self. The only true gospel is the gospel of Christ and him crucified. And that's the only way that you can participate with him in that gospel is that yourself may be crucified with him That is how you will be born and generated again by his agape love. Only when your self-motivation is dead with Christ, it's not I but Christ, then agape will reign in your life and in mine. That's genuine being born again every day. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.